0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor in chief of the network, and we scour the internet every week and look for good books, and then we interview the authors of those books. And this week, I'm very happy to say we have Kathleen Friedel on the show, and we'll be talking about uh, her new book, The Drug Wars in America, 1940 to 1973. As I told Kathleen, in the pre-interview, I'm sort of involved in the drug wars myself. I work with a lot of alcoholics and drug addicts and another connection. And so I was very interested to read her book to see if I was wasting my time or not. Uh, and she has some very interesting things to say about that and particularly about the history of, uh, the, I guess, the kind of thing that I'm involved in and is, I should say, supported by the government, um, which, is, which is an interesting thing in and of itself. So, Kathleen, uh, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much. How are you, Marshall?
0: I'm very well, thanks. Uh, could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: i um, sure I um, am a political historian and I received my PhD um, in 2000 um, and I went to school at a time when there was a revived interest in uh, institutional history or state building and I was very influenced by those kinds of conversations but I was also influenced by the longer heritage if you will of political history as it had been written um, for several generations prior, and in a sense almost skipped a generation because of the tremendous rise and influence of social history and then cultural history in its wake. And political history as it was written in the 1990s was influenced by social and cultural history a great deal. So my first book was on the World War II GI Bill, which I'm happy to say um, won the 2010 book prize from the the National Academy of Public Administration, Um, and that book spent a lot of time discussing the institution of the Veterans Administration and the institution of the United States Congress, but also, I hope, um, showed some attention to um, the influences of social and cultural history, especially scholarship on race. Um, So that was my first monograph, um, and while I was researching that monograph, I stumbled upon an oral history in the Truman Presidential Archives that made me want to write my next book on the U.S. drug war. Um, and I can talk a little bit about what it was um, in that interview, if you'd like, about mm-hmm. what I stumbled on that made me want to write a book on a drug war. And that was an oral history interview by Oscar Ewing who was a very important official in the Truman administration, and he um, had all kinds of responsibilities um, to do with the GI Bill as head of the Federal Security Agency, which today, through multiple (laughs) incarnations, is now um, Health and Human Services, Uh, but at that time was known as the Federal Security Agency. Anyway, I read the entire history while I was sitting there waiting for records And um, Oscar Ewing mentioned that in his early career, he worked as a lawyer for a domestic pharmaceutical company, and um, as such, he was often traveling to the League of Nations to represent those interests. And more as an aside, he mentioned that the United States at that time had... The finest system of drug control in the world which he characterized as being the envy of the world and he also characterized it as being the most robust and circumspect and that really caught my eye because I was already this was already um, the year 2000 and nobody would describe the US system of illicit drug regulation as the envy of the world in fact it was the target of um, much much resentment throughout the world. And so I was really interested to know how we came from being the envy of the world to the target of so much resentment when it came to the drug war. So right then and there, I decided to write my second book.
0: Mm -hmm, I see. So uh, let's begin, actually, I want to begin with a little chronology because I think many people will be surprised about this, especially the earlier period. the book covers 1940 to 1973 uh, in, in the um, the first era, which I think in the book is called the – is it called the classical era or – I'm sorry, I don't remember the exact phrase.
1: You know, it's not my phrase, but it's called the classical era of narcotics regulation.
0: Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that and how we controlled uh, narcotics? And, and I guess we should include marijuana in that or is, should alcohol be included? What gets included? <laughs>
1: Well, if the government had its way, all kinds of things that um, are not narcotics would be included under the word narcotic. Um, But let me just start with the classical era and answer Mm -hmm. the question um, as asked, which is, you know, people forget um, that heroin was and morphine um, were medicines of essential value to the U.S. medical system for many, many decades. Um, Cocaine as well was used um, for medicinal purposes, and that history existed alongside of um, these drugs used for recreational purposes. Um, And so when we see heroin addicts on the street today who are being policed and feeling the brunt of the U.S. state, what we should really be looking at and seeing in our eyes and kind of an analogy that we are making is that they are the OxyContin addicts um, of yesterday you know what i'm saying like this Mm -hmm. this was a medicine this was a medicine um that was used for in the 1930s and 1940s and the 1950s for many many purposes some of which would raise a lot of eyebrows today but it was a new medicine um and the medical profession had you know some difficulty in, in narrowing the categories for which heroin could be used so for instance heroin used to be um, prescribed in some cases in the 1930s for asthma and that would raise a lot of eye, you know eyebrows today. you know. So heroin was used for medicine and the trick for the United States government or I should say the dilemma facing it was how to import heroin because it was very much an import and how um, to import coca leaves or um, cocaine in a refined form, how to import these things and keep them in licit channels, how to track the distribution of it. Um, and so in order to do that, um, in 1914, the government passed the Harrison Narcotic Act. And that's typically what people describe as inaugurating the classic era of narcotics control. And in a lot of the scholarship that exists on the drug war, which is great and, and much of which um, focuses attention on race and class dimensions and points out that um, illicit narcotics use was never much pursued unless and until it was taken up by racial minorities like Chinese smoking opium or blacks um, using cocaine in the South. And then, you know, these things kind of crescendoed into hysterical campaigns. That's all true and that's important. But at the very same time, the United States government was importing a tremendous amount of these items, especially heroin um, and morphine, in order to satisfy the medical need for them. So, I was interested in the story of um, the Harrison Narcotics Act, the the nuts and bolts, so to speak, of the Harrison Narcotics Act and how it was implemented. And it was implemented through an office called the Bureau of Narcotics, which ultimately today is our modern-day drug enforcement agency, but only through, like, several steps and different kinds of transfers and political battles. Initially, the Bureau of Narcotics, um was located in the Department of Treasury. And I go through some pains, and you might have noticed this in the in the book, I go through some pains to describe um, the Bureau of Narcotics and why the Treasury, the Department of Treasury, was such a natural fit um, for the Bureau of Narcotics. and this this wasn't just an artifact of like prohibi- prohibition era thinking. Um in fact, the Treasury, was the place to keep this office if what you were doing was importing um, opium or importing heroin or importing morphine and levying a tariff on it as soon as it came into the country and then monitoring it by levying a tax at every stage in the process. So diversion back in, say, 1935 or even 1955 was the consumption of heroin without the appropriate tax stamp. And one of the important moments in the book comes in 1968 when the Bureau of Narcotics is transferred over to the Department of Justice. And in some ways, um, a lot of the book is reciting the story of how and why that transfer happened because it's a transfer of tremendous significance. When the Bureau of Narcotics lives in the Department of Treasury, Whatever else is going on, and there's a lot going on, including the very moralistic campaign waged against illicit narcotics used by the head of the Bureau of Narcotics, you know, whatever else is going on, when the office is embedded in the Department of Treasury, you're still holding on to this conceit that drugs are a trade and you're going to tax that trade and you're going to levy tariffs on that trade to discipline it and kind of have it keep the shape that you want. When it moves over to the Department of Justice, what you're essentially saying is drugs are a crime and I'm going to try to catch the criminals.
0: Mm-hmm. Could you tell us, I'm mean, just very briefly, and again this was news to me, what, uh, what sort of drugs were illegal in, say, 1935? That is, th- th- that there were actual criminal penalties for their um, production, distribution, and use.
1: Yeah, I mean... So the way to think about it is, how did you get your heroin? I mean, we don't have, um, the, I guess the closest you could come is marijuana after the 1937 marijuana um, tax Act, which is modeled very closely on the Harrison Narcotic Act, with the exception being that nobody had, um, nobody pretended that there were medicinal uses to marijuana at that time. Which again, this all strikes us as very strange, you know, to the modern ear, um, because today we're in the midst of a national conversation um, which regularly assigns medical value to marijuana and looks at heroin like it's a devil, you know what I'm saying? So it's, in 1937, it was actually the opposite, where heroin was viewed as this is a medicine and it can be diverted into illicit channels, and if you're consuming heroin without the appropriate tax stamp or Importantly enough, if you're a doctor um, dealing out heroin for illicit or what the government judges to be illicit reasons, then then you can be threatened with the loss of your license. Um, But actually having a marijuana cigarette in your hand, which had no medicinal value in the eyes of the government, was more damning, like, say, in 1948 than having heroin. You know, so at that point, um, what, I mean, it, Again, this is, this is very strange to the modern era, but already um, because of some very important regulations that the legal, uh, League of Nations put in in the 1930s um, before it was dissolved as an institution, um, it used to be that most of the illicit trade in actual narcotics, and I'm, I'm using the, the real term there, not the government's definition of narcotics, most of the illicit trade in narcotics was performed by the drug companies making um, the medicine, and what they would do was overproduce. And, and to be quite honest with you, it would be astonishing for me to learn that the same thing wasn't taking place with OxyContin today. So, what they would do is overproduce, and they would just say, Well, wherever it goes, it goes. And I'm going to sell this much on the listed channel, but the rest will just go where it goes. And the money that I make. I will use to lower my price on my licit product and become a more com- competitive pharmaceutical um, company. So the League of Nations instituted these regulations designed to sever um, the licit and illicit trade in narcotics and they were very successful, maybe too successful, because as a result and as other historians have discussed, the illicit trade in narcotics went further and deeper underground and actually became the illicit production of narcotics. You know, it was no longer it was no longer the case that um, by 1955 at least it was no longer the case that the heroin reaching the shores of the United States had at one point been illicit heroin. By 1955 and certainly by 1965, you're talking about a drug that had started out being criminal from the very get-go. Mhm. Mhm.
0: So bring us into the um Modern era, I guess it's, it's when does the classical era end? that is and, and let me say this it, would it be correct to characterize the way in which the United States controlled what we think of today as illicit drugs through taxation and sort of regulation of that kind, fiscal measures?
1: Yes, yes, it would be. I mean that's just it's just technically true. Um, and so you know it was a very it was a very transparent but and and really kind of farcical. Um, political theater that would take place if you were arrested, for instance, with marijuana before the 1970 Controlled Substances Act, which is the answer to your question. That's when it ends. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess, you know, just stepping back and, and taking a, a look at my book and what it's designed to do, the classical era of narcotics regulation, as it's been portrayed in the historiography thus far, has been portrayed in, um, I don't want to say simplified, but has been portrayed as being about only one story, which is Harry Anslinger's, you know, pursuit of the addicts. And I guess my book is trying to say, as true as that story is, and it is true, um, there's a lot of other things going on, uh, things going on with the U.S. state that influence um, the nature of um, the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. Mm -hmm. So prior to that, if you were busted with a joint, You know the if you were, I think I don't think they did this obviously for every arrest. But if you were busted with at least a significant amount of marijuana, the IRS would actually come out, and the agents hated this, and assess you with a tax fee in addition to the criminal penalties. That were levied against you because mm-hmm. you were in possession of unstamped or, you know, un, you know improper marijuana. The RRS would come out and slap you with a tax fee. And they hated doing it because it was a tax fee that they basically never collected. You know, I mean, if you were arrested, you had bigger problems. And so it was this kind of political charade that Timothy Leary finally, you know, called the government on, um, in, in his successful challenge to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. But yes, it was definitely we tax drugs. That is how we regulated drugs.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it wasn't the only. I mean, I guess the, the thing I'm getting to is in 1953, right. did I go by smack legally?
1: <laughs> right, okay. So if you wanted to get um, an illicit hit of heroin, so if you wanted to get a hit of heroin because of your own dependence or your own recreational yeah. That you would have two options. One would be to go to a doctor who you knew dispensed it. And mm-hmm. many people did this. Many, many people did this, and much of the bureaus uh, – I shouldn't say much because Harry Amslinger um, really tried to limit the amount of enforcement he invested in this particular part of his policy portfolio or his enforcement portfolio, but – the way that many um, people got illicit narcotics is by going to the doctor and getting a prescription for them, and frankly, that's how a lot of people get oxycontin today, Marshall. Like that—that's that's the best comparison to draw. How do people get oxycontin today? Some of them go on a street corner and they get it dose by dose, you know, and they pay an illicit price for it, or not an illicit price—they they pay a price for this illicit drug. Some of them go to doctors who they know to be sure. dispensing it. That's how it was. Doctor 19- shopping. Yeah. Yep. That's how it was. That's what heroin was in this country.
0: Mm-hmm. So go to a doctor. What was the other option?
1: Buy it on the street corner.
0: Right. But I guess the thing I don't understand is that we, we use the word illicit.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but if we're regulating it by means of taxation, it seems to me that you'd just be able to sell it. I mean, cigarettes, for example, regulated by taxation, you just sell them. They're not, it's not illegal to smoke cigarettes. You just sell them. There's a tax on them. That's how okay. we control them.
1: Okay. So the Harrison Narcotic Act, maybe this will... Um, the logical distinction we're searching for here. The Harrison Narcotic Act said that um, you can only get heroin by prescription only. It it basically invented this category Mm -hmm. um, of prescription only that the Food and Drug Administration later added to in important ways in the 1950s. And it's also a story I address in my book. It's a very important story. But you needed a prescription from a doctor in order to um, obtain heroin legally.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. So if you were found with heroin... Um, and you didn't have a prescription for it, then you were criminally liable. You just didn't have to pay a tax.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yes, you were. If you were found with unstamped heroin, and this is, the story my book tells is that how did we get to that point? How is it that Anslinger, who was the head of the Bureau of Narcotics um, for a very long time, he had a very long tenure, um, how is it that he was able to successfully get in people's faces, you know, in the face of Congress and say, actually, instead of just the tax, um, we should be slapping these people with criminal penalties. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, over time, let's make those criminal penalties more severe. That's a very important story. And, and that kind of graduating penalty scheme, I, I think, shouldn't be treated as linear because there are important choices at every point. And there are also treatment advocates really at every point. So his, his drive, in a sense, to criminalize possession and, and, importantly, to have possession as proof of a crime, that's remarkable. You know, if I came to where you are, Marshall, and I stole your car and I had your car the police could come and arrest me and the possession of your car would certainly be very strong circumstantial evidence against me, but they would still have to make a case. Mm -hmm. They would still have to make a case about how I got that. Anslinger was able to successfully persuade the U S Congress that actually just possession of heroin should be proof of a crime. And that's why police and our criminal justice system in a sense gravitate towards so many drug charges because it's, it's an easy arrest for them. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're, if you have heroin, I don't have to make any sort of case against you. You have the heroin.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, so let's tell that story. How, how did, uh, how did, mm, how did these, what were really controlled substances? We, that's our modern terminology for them. How did these controlled substances become criminalized? How, how did he convince uh, the legislators and, and, and police officers throughout the nation that we should really be going after these people?
1: Well, yeah. There were, as you can imagine, there were different reasons why. And one very important reason is because he was able to persuade the U.S. Congress and the U.S. public that addiction um, had a certain profile to it. Addiction meant, by and large, um, city residents who were minorities. And that's who I'm going to trace. Now, that was not true. And, and as one of the interesting things that I think my book hopefully tries to get at is how this regime of increasing criminal punishment coexisted alongside a regime that was refusing to regulate um, other newer forms of synthetic drugs. And those two things are taking place and unfolding at the very same time, and they bear a relationship to each other. When amphetamines and barbiturates come on the scene, the government's refusal to regulate them in any meaningful way or attach criminal penalties, such as the ones we're talking about, is just as important as its scheme to ratchet up criminal penalties. So what happens in the post-war years is that the country experiences, um, let's say, several waves of concern over drugs. And in the United States Congress, there are political officials, especially from the South, who are deeply vested in um, kind of positing this image of of black criminality. And illicit drug use is one very key component to that social construction of black criminality. And Harry Anslinger not only plays into this, he helps to sustain it. Um, And this whole idea that Illicit drug use is confined to the city, and it's confined to racial minorities in the city. is is is, a, is not just present in discussions about how and why we should ratchet up penalties for unstamped heroin or things like that. It's it's a causal factor in in and of itself. I mean, that's just how prevalent it is that they're relying on on these stereotypes. At the very same time, um, the government is ratcheting up criminal penalties for heroin because of other sorts of ideas that are around at the time and very influential at the time. Harry Ansinger um, successfully portrayed heroin addiction as contagious, for instance. And the whole idea of contagion is something that, um, not just U.S. historians, but historians have been paying more and more attention to, not just about communicable diseases, but other things that that get um, portrayed as being contagious, like social contagions. Um, So, This whole idea of contagion is very important in the 1950s when Harry Anslinger comes before the U.S. Congress and says, well, it's important to throw this certain specific set of people in jail because they're contagious, and addiction is contagious. And it has a remarkable um, kind of similarity, really, to um, rhetoric about the Soviet Union and containment. Like, it's important to just sequester this, quarantine it, and and keep it where it is, um, in you know, and, and it's very very militant. So that is also influential alongside race. That's also influential in um, the Congress ratcheting up criminal penalties. But one thing that I think my book gets at that really other people haven't looked at at all is the way in which this specific depiction of drugs as being an evil cabal, the way in which that frees the business interests and commercial interests of this country to pursue trade abroad and at home relatively free of government interference. I try to tell the story of the U.S. Customs Bureau throughout the 1950s alongside the U.S. Bureau of Narcotics because I think it's very interesting. The U.S. Customs Bureau has a very, I would say, realistic appraisal of what what the drug trade is. And their approach to it is that it's, it's everywhere. It's a part of trade. The more trade we have, the more drugs we have. And the best thing that you can do um, in order to check this trade and, you know, keep it, at least the illicit components of it, keep it um, low, as low as possible, is to perform routine ex- inspections. Well, this is something that business interests in this country find to be in a it, it will slow them down. It's just yet another bureaucratic step. So, the, the whole portrayal or depiction of the drug trade and the criminalization of it as being evil, you know, spares us business interests of these kinds of, of these kind of routine interference or checks. Um, and I think, I think that's an interesting part of the story. And, 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 you know, I don't know that anyone's ever talked about that um, before. So I'm, I'm very happy to put that business angle, so to speak, or that, more materialist interpretation, right? But, but just table. to interrupt
0: you for a second, the businesses weren't yeah, growing ahead. marijuana. I'm sorry. But just to interrupt you for a second, the businesses weren't growing marijuana.
1: No, they weren't growing. This is marijuana trade um, is described as an importation trade for the purposes of the Marijuana Tax Act, but not even Congress believes that. You know, they think it's. You know, <laughs> there are some great moments in some testimony in the early 1950s when Harry Ansinger tries to explain his refusal. To um, regulate amphetamines and barbiturates by pointing to the fact that they're not international trade, and Hale to to "Well, neither is marijuana." Come on, you know this is grown domestically. Yeah. It's gro- you know it's grown throughout the United States. So you're perfectly right. You know this. This is not um, this sparing the business interests of interference in international trade is not to do with marijuana.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, I see. Hmm. So. Then, if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is that um, Harry Anslinger and and his cohort were very interested. Well, let me just ask the question directly. Okay. Uh, Now, a a naive, I guess naive, um, uh, historian like me would simply say that Harry Anslinger recognized that illicit drugs cost the United States an enormous amount every year uh, in terms of lost tax revenue in terms of lost productivity, in terms of lots of things, and they also destroyed families and people. And that was the primary reason why he wanted to stop the illicit drug trade.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think that that's naive. Um, I think the problem that you encounter is that Harry Anslinger ran an extremely corrupt force to do it. And the internal, and I hope that my book, Gets at some of this. The internal discussions almost invalidate um, the public pronouncements that Harry Anslinger is making. For instance, in the nineteen fifties, he, he sits there and says, "Well, I have an addict role of sixty thousand addicts." Uh, you know, which is, I mean, it's not hard to hear the kind of McCarthyite tones to Harry Anslinger's you know public pronouncements. He says, "I have an addict role. I have the names of every addict on on this role. and you know, the New York office, which for many years was the most important of the Bureau of Narcotics, his district offices, you know, wrote to Harry Anslinger and said, you know, we check this addict role and it's ridiculous. And most of the people on it don't even use drugs. And, you know, a lot of people we know who use drugs aren't on it. And so these kinds of discrepancies that Harry Anslinger was well aware of, the disconnect, so to speak, between his public pronouncements um, regarding drugs. And, and And obviously, you know, it's not difficult to have sympathy with um, pronouncements like addiction ruins lives and ruins families and can ruin communities. That's something that sadly we see lived out on a day-to-day basis um, in our own world today. So, I mean, obviously one can have sympathy, but his racially charged um, depiction of that use, which he knew to be at variance with the actual, um, you know, community of illicit drug users and his own forces incompetence and corruption i think invite skepticism regarding his ultimate purposes
0: mm-hmm. so in what way were uh the, the, his forces corrupted i'm sorry in what way were his forces corrupted
1: they were complicit in the illicit drug trade mhm yeah they took money you mm-hmm. know, this is a, this is an endem- i try to argue and i very much believe that this is a problem that's endemic to narcotics enforcement
0: mhm mm-hmm. i see um yeah, it's difficult to separate those things out, and I, you know, you t- you, you do you do a good job of it in the book, uh, and I did recognize the, mm, I don't know if I'd call it McCarthyite, but I did recognize some of the, uh, some of the the I guess loaded language that you found at that time. But I guess the thing that, that to me, you know, is is that uh, that this was a real problem then. And
1: yeah, and, I guess by McCarthyite um, Marshall, I'm just referring to this whole thing of I have the names and I have a list of the people who are doing this incredibly nefarious thing mm-hmm. that, that has a definite resonance and connection to the language of Joseph McCarthy and this whole, you know, the whole pursuit of communists. Like I have names and I have a list. Right. Sure. Yeah, sure.
0: That's right. So how did law enforcement, um, I'm just interested to know this. How, how did law enforcement officials uh, react to the criminalization of all these things? Cause it seems to really up their workload.
1: Okay. So this is one of the stories I really love telling. And this is To me, um, one of the reasons why it's important to write a book uh, like the book I wrote, because this story will get lost in other kinds of narrative. It's not easy to persuade local law enforcement Mm -mm. to pursue drugs with conviction. (laughs)
0: No, sir, it's not. (laughs) You know,
1: it's not easy. And actually, Marshall, at some point, if you want to say more about your own work with addicts, I'd be very interested to hear about that, but... um, the law enforcement in this country used to have a vice squad. And one of the things I say is actually we're dealing with um, major police departments that have, in effect, been transformed into, you know, the whole thing has been transformed into vice squads with a primary interest in narcotics. And the transition between that world, the transition between Okay, we have a huge police department, only one section of which is responsible for drug enforcement, to, in fact, we have a huge police department that is primor- primarily focused on drug enforcement, is not easy, and it's not uncontested. So I try to trace the story of how and why drug in- the drug enforcement portfolio expanded into what we now know it to be. And um so... One of the things, again, that I think gets lost in other narratives is that in 1955, your average cop, you know, especially a cop who lit, um, was not in New York City, probably couldn't even recognize heroin use when he saw it. You know, it wasn't necessarily on the street and it wasn't, it wasn't something that he was being trained to police. Right. So what the cops in most urban police departments used to do was call the vice squad. And the vice squad, if they saw any suspicious activity, the vice squad would come in, and they would typically have extremely corrupt officers who had some sort of relationship to the drug dealer in the first place. And the the, the standing agreement between the two, and I get into this here in Washington D.C., was that the you know the dealer would hand over certain small time, you know, street dealers um, in exchange for being left alone. Um, and the dealer would also hand over money to the police. So we have this situation, and by the end of my story, um, we have police departments who have basically signed agreements, um, and that's actually what they are. They're signed agreements with the newly created Drug Enforcement Agency to take over street-level policing from the Bureau of Narcotics. And the Bureau of Narcotics, and now the DEA, says, okay, now we're going to focus on the big turkeys and the international dealing dealings and you the urban police department or whatever will take o- will take over when it comes to street level enforcement of narcotics. And one of the things that I argue one of the reasons why we have that transition is because police are desperately searching for new ways and new tools to retain the kind of discretion that they were accustomed to having. And that discretion came under assault um, as a result of police prof- professionalism kind of emerging from within the ranks of police and civil rights reform from outside of it. And those two fo- forces, you know, it used to be that um, in Washington, D.C. and other urban centers, there were a tremendous number of arrests every year for public drunkenness, right? And the Supreme Court invalidates that in 1966, and you can no longer arrest for public drunkenness. You just can't. And there were arrests in, in my city, in Washington, D.C., for things like loitering. These are incredibly discre- incredible discretionary tools. You know, the police are making all kinds of decisions about who they want to arrest for what. Um, you know, I'm arresting you for just loitering, which means... I just don't want you standing here, you know? So these things get taken away from police because they're recognized correctly as, um, you know, instruments of social control. And in their place, in comes the tools of the drug enforcement. Um, You could be arrested for possession of heroin. You could be arrested if you were in the house while somebody else had heroin. You could be arrested on a street corner when you're near heroin, you know? And these tools are not a perfect fit from the amount of discretion that police once had, but by and large they take over and the amount of arrests that police start making for narcotics offenses skyrockets in 1969, 1970, and then thereafter. And people always say to me, well, isn't that because drugs are skyrocketing as well? And of course that is true, especially because of the Vietnam war, there's an influx of um, very pure Heroin into this country because of a new Southeast Asian um, connection and the Golden Triangle, but that those arrest rates never go back down again. You know, even as we cycle through, you know, we have peaks and crests, and then we have troughs in drug availability and pr- pricing and so forth. The arrest rate stays the same. And in the mid 1980s, when Ronald Reagan collects all of these tools and asserts them with new force and vigor, they go skyrocketing up.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Marshall, did you want to say more about the kind of work that yeah,
0: you Yeah, I do in just a second, but I have a couple more questions. One of them is, uh, so uh, we, we should really, uh, so this is a big moment 1971. Richard Nixon declares war on drugs. War yeah. on drugs. Why does he do that?
1: Well, there were several forces influencing <clears throat> him. Um, you know, over the weekend, I took part in a discussion, and um, in between commercial play- breaks, the, the people around the table were so eager to establish Richard Nixon's, um, bona fides as as a reformer, as a legitimate reformer, because as President, although he declared a war on drugs um, he he spent more much more on treatment than he did on actual enforcement um, and and i you know I participate in that let 's say acknowledgement of nixon 's um, mm-hmm. priorities, but I also quibble with it a little bit because he actually did a lot of things to you know, give us this world that we have today, including bolstering the DEA, et cetera, et cetera. But in any event, one of the things that was influencing him most um, was his commitment to treatment, which in turn was a commitment that came from all of the coverage of U.S. soldiers in South Vietnam and the problems with heroin there. Um, And there's a longstanding commitment on the part of the federal government to care for disabled soldiers when they come home And this is, you know, truly one of the country's oldest commitments. And soldiers were coming home with heroin addiction that was really publicized and, according to some scholars, greatly sensationalized. Um, And because of that, Nixon made all kinds of investments in treatment um, because he had to, you know, he had to explain or he had to embrace um, U.S. soldiers' heroin addiction, which, you know, that kind of addiction sat uneasily next to the kinds of addiction that Harry Anslinger had talked about throughout the 1950s and 60s as morally dubious people. Here we have U.S. soldiers coming home. Um, you know, they are the nation's youngest, you know, resource. We cherish them. They're coming home. They have heroin addiction. So Nixon actually supported all kinds of treatment initiatives in Washington DC including methadone maintenance clinics in the hopes that they would be kind of testing grounds or proving grounds if you will for how to deal with um, heroin addiction um, among soldiers in South US soldiers in South Vietnam so that was one very big influence on um, Nixon's um, decision to declare a war on drugs in 1971 another um, and this is what I would tell the people who are on the table over the weekend, if I had had the time, another very big um, influence is just a sheer political calculation. You know, that Nixon was um, convinced that the law and order rhetoric, which he um, espoused and re- repeated often was the key way in which he w- was able to recruit um, especially white ethnics to his so-called silent majority, you know, to entice voters who had previously been part of the Democratic Party coalition mm-hmm. um, since the era of the New Deal to entice them over to, um, vote for, um, to vote for a Republican. So there is that. There is also the case that, you know, drugs are becoming, you know, there's the level of street crime or property crime committed for drugs from 1969 to 1971 is is something that needs to be just taken at face value as one reason why President Nixon would declare a war on drugs. The perception is, especially within the cities, that this is a problem that's gotten out of hand and it's taking too much of a toll on the fabric of our everyday life. Um, And so that's another reason um, why Nixon would declare a war on drugs. But in fact, prior to his declaration, he had made important moves, um, including the Controlled Substances Act, that signaled he was aware of, um, I would say, the state-building opportunities um, that transferring and consolidating the drug policy portfolio represented.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I, I don't remember that I, was, I was, it was much too young for it but I remember its aftermath uh, of the of the war on drugs and of course it's still with us today so um, you know, let me switch gears just a little bit I want to read one sentence from the preface to your book which I quite like uh, and, and it is this um, this history implicitly suggests and I explicitly argue that the drug war quote unquote is not the only or best way to handle drugs I want to note at the outset however that the paramount virtue of alternative schemes is merely that they are less bad. Although superior to a militant drug war, legalization and decriminalization are far more worthy goals in their own right. So I might understand then that you support. Are, are far from worthy goals. Are far, is that what I said?
1: Yeah. You said, no, you said far more. And I, I, I did. Think that, far from yeah. worthy goals.
0: Let me look at it again. I'm sorry. I, I, think, I think it says forever more.
1: Uh,
0: yeah. Uh-huh, right. I think that. Yeah. Uh, that's my meaning. Right. Are far from worthy goals in their own right. I didn't read yeah. that. Anyway, far from worthy goals in their own right. Legalization and decriminalization. So um, legalization and decriminalization. And here's where I will talk a little bit about my experience. So it uh, might understand from this that you you you, in favor, you favor something like this. You think that you sort of, you know, on a, on a fair and balanced accounting um, I, I can't believe I used that phrase <laughs> 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 the, uh, the, that the, uh, yeah, the historian would say, you know, this war on drug thing is just not working and uh, we should go back to kind of a different sort of regulation of drugs. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I guess one question I have, and this is one that I, I I've uh, had for a long time. And, and I ask people that are in favor of uh, de- decriminalization legalization. Is that have we already done this and it's turned out pretty disastrously and it's with alcohol I mean, yeah, that's, yeah, I mean that's, 30 that's, million that's, Americans are yeah. alcoholics. I
1: hope you noticed, Marshall, that um, in the book when I bring up alcohol, it's um – you know, it's funny when people read it, they think, "Oh, you know, it's just like alcohol, so everything's okay."
0: Yeah. Or and
1: right. actually, the tone, right? And the tone in which oh, I'm bringing God. it up is more like it's just like alcohol, <laughs> and hence presents some serious
0: yeah. issues. I mean, yeah, the numbers on alcohol are pretty pretty striking. You know, I mean, like one in fifteen people that ever pick up a drink becomes an alcoholic. Something, twenty or thirty million Americans are addicted to alcohol. It costs us trillions of dollars every year. Um, you know, treatment alone costs us that, not to mention the destruction of families and so on and so forth. You know, and this is this is a very well regulated industry, uh, you know, he just stamps on it. You know,
1: Although less so now. I, I don't know if you uh, you're, you caught the uh, Washington Monthly article about the growing strength of the distributors in the U.S. Congress and how uh, this was like maybe a Washington Monthly from two or three months ago. Um, but but what we think of as a well-regulated alcohol in- industry, and I'm sorry to interrupt, and I, and I no, want to address yeah. the larger points that you're bringing up, but what we think of as a well-regulated alcohol industry which, by the way, took a long time. Um, you know, the story of the repeal of prohibition and, um, and and the well-regulated alcohol industry that we supposedly have today, that's, that's an interesting story mm-hmm. in and of itself. Um, you know, it didn't just happen that we snapped our fingers and all these people came out of their, you know, illegal stills and said, I guess I'll be legal now. <laughs>
0: that's true. You, you know, it,
1: that's a very complex, uncontested story in its own right. And, that, you know, I'd love it if somebody uh, wrote that story. I refer to it. But I was writing a different book anyway. Our our very well regulated um, alcohol industry is starting to look a little bit more like Britain, where a very few powerful alcohol companies control the distribution chain, and are looking to let's, I mean, to put it simply, if not crudely, just add more alcohol to the distribution networks and and you know so. Actually that's an that's an issue that has always warranted our attention. Alcohol is an issue that's always warranted our attention and warrants it even more right now, just for very specific political reasons. But you know, you're right. I mean, that alcohol presents that alcohol is the drug that most people commit a crime while under the influence of and most people commit a crime in order to get, you know, people think oh, it's heroin or something else. It's not, it's alcohol. And Mm -hmm. it's a completely legal substance. Mm -hmm. So I have a great sympathy for you or I think Mark Kleinman. I think a lot of people have drawn attention um, to, you know, alcohol is not anything to shrug off. In fact, you know, Al Boomstein, who's this criminologist um, at Carnegie Mellon, he's been in the field for a very long time and I hope he won't mind me saying that. he was. He told me a story when in the 1980s, He went before the U.S. Sentencing Commission to testify against the sentencing disparity um, between crack um, and cocaine. So the the infamous 100 to 1 uh, disparity that Mm -hmm. President Obama only very recently put an end to and reduced it down to 16 to 1. So he appeared before the U.S. Sentencing Commission in the late 1980s when the crack epidemic was at its most fierce and the public, um, the public perception of crack um, as, as nefarious as crack is as a drug, the public perception of crack and the stories being told about it were even you know worse than than the reality of what was taking place on the street. so it was politically not a moment when you wanted to defend so to speak crack and so so Albski appeared um, before the u s sentencing commission and he saw on the list of witnesses before him are all these doctors, you know, medical doctors. And he thought, man, I'm, you know, I'm dead, I'm toast. <laughs> and, you know, what I have to say about the injustice of this disparity, these doctors are going to come all before me and say, you know, tell these stories about crack babies. Remember that? Remember yeah, crack I remember, babies? yeah. So actually what he found was the doctors came before him and got up and said, yes, um, a pregnant woman who takes uh, crack can damage her fetus. But that's nothing compared to what a pregnant woman does, you know, the damage that a pregnant woman can do to her fetus by taking just cocaine. And that is nothing compared to the damage that is done when a pregnant woman drinks alcohol.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: And in fact, alcohol is the most dangerous for a developing fetus. So when you talk about the dangers of alcohol, and and I want everyone to know this about the book, this book is not... um, endorsed by, like, normal.
0: or You know <laughs> you
1: know what I'm saying? Like, this book is not a
0: book that... If only. Think about the money. You <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> you know what
1: I'm saying? And, and I, I say something, and I think for preface maybe the introduction about this, that, you know, this is not a book that's in search of better drugs. You know what I mean? Like, a lot of the drug reformers out there are just really in search of legal access and better drugs. And, and this is this book was written by an author who can't even tolerate allergy medicine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So it's, um, it really is for me, Marshall, that, that prohibition just doesn't make sense yep. and you're not achieving the goals that you want to achieve. Mm-hmm. And and I agree with you that the repeal of prohibition expanded the legal market share of alcohol, meaning more adults participated in alcohol regularly. And, and that in turn exposed and, and I'm not totally sure on the science here, but I think it's safe to say that the the greater the experimentation, the greater the ris- risks of addiction are, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that you're really in a situation with the war on drugs where we're spending so, so very, very much money and wreaking so much damage, especially in certain communities and achieving so... So, so very little. I mean, it's all of those things at once that inclines me to say this is not the best way to go about this. You know, price and purity for every single drug except for marijuana. um, The prices have, all of those indicators have gone in the wrong direction since we started this war on drugs. Mm -hmm. Heroin is cheaper now, and it's more pure, and it's more available. Mm Right. Mm -hmm. Cocaine is much cheaper now. It's actually ridiculous how cheap cocaine is compared to before we started this war on drugs. Mm -hmm. And people say to me, you know, enforcement supporters say to me, that's because the sources of production have expanded. And I say to them, that's because you've motivated the sources of production to expand, because anytime you prohibit something, you add to the profit margins. You know, people take tremendous risks in carrying contraband. They make a lot of money doing this. You know, El Chapo, you know, Joaquin Guzman in in Mexico, it's very difficult to estimate his wealth because it's all earned in the underground economy. But Forbes, you know, puts him on the list of the world's wealthiest men. Mm -hmm. That cannot be that cannot $5 heroin. And Guzman leading the world in wealth that cannot be the world that we want when it comes to illicit drug regulation so that that tone of um, resignation if you will that you're picking up on in the preface is is where I sit on this issue politically and emotionally it's it's not a it's not a drugs are great and you know there are there are people out there who are like you know what addiction itself is just a social construction and Mm -hmm. And I'm not one of those people. I think it's, I think that Alfred Lindesmith, who's a longtime addiction researcher, you're probably familiar with him, um, he argued a very long time ago that addiction is informed by certain contextual um, variables. And so I mean, I guess in that sense, you can call addiction a social construction, but these people who almost seem to shrug it off, that, that my book isn't there, you know, my book won't help them, let's say, in, mm-hmm. in their fight.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's all very wise, I think. I mean, when I think about um, how to best, mm, let's say, uh, well, there's a kind of an analogy between what people say about um, guns and what people say about drugs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, about guns, people say, you know, we should limit guns in this way and that way. Um, and they constantly bring up people who uh, go into schools and shoot kids. Right. Far and away, the greatest number of fatalities that are the result of gun violence are suicides, far and away. And so, you know, if our if we want to put our money in the sort of most productive place, we should try to prevent people from committing suicide with guns. Um, and I think similarly, you know, uh, the, uh, alcohol is so much more damaging than any other drug. That it just dwarfs every other drug, and we don't pay pretty much any attention to it. Well, that's really not true. We do pay attention to it, and I we, know that... We
1: do, but I agree not enough. And mm. I... <laughs> One of the things, when I so I, I just want to be clear about what I endorse. Um, I do endorse the legalization of marijuana, which is to say, legal production, legal sale, legal distribution, and taxation. Mm-hmm. So the other drugs, um, I only support decriminalization, and mm-hmm. I support internationally moving the pursuit of illicit drug production from the tools of enforcement over to the tools of trade. Mm-hmm. And there are specific things that I mean by that, which have to do with um t- signing trade agreements, possibly through the WTO um and the Department of Commerce in this country that will help us influence the availability, price and potency of these drugs, which is ostensibly what we're trying to do mm-hmm. with the gun and the badge right now. Mm-hmm. But we're driving those indicators in exactly the wrong direction. Right. Right? right? So this is not a well it's fine. You know, let's let's go buy heroin in the store kind of book.
0: Mm-hmm. This is
1: a book about how can we do this better? And maybe looking at our past when we did approach this problem in a very different way will help us think about how we can how we can think about this how we can move forward more productively and in, in a cost benefit way I mean if you did a cost benefit analysis of our drug war then a policy of you know passing out lollipops and holding hands would be it. you know what I mean <laughs> that's how much we're spending right now and that's how much it costs yeah. us well, this drug war right now but one of the things I do say and I want to just want to bring this to your attention because you you're an advocate when it comes to raising awareness of the dangers of alcohol. I just think our whole, you know, what kills more people than gun violence, by the way, are traffic accidents. Yeah,
0: a lot more. I mean, so many words. And a hear.
1: lot more. And I would, I would like to see more attention. Right now in Colorado and Washington, there's questions about how do you test, when somebody's behind the wheel if they're high in marijuana and those are important questions and stuff but I would like to see regardless of the drug I don't care if it's OxyContin I don't care if you have a prescription for it why are you driving you know what I mean I would like to see the whole driving question separated Mm. out and considered on its own merits whatever it is you're under the influence of whether it's alcohol whether it's some licit um, drug that you have a prescription for or an illicit use of Oxycontin, or whatever, you know? I just think that the traffic thing needs to be separated out and considered on its own merits, regardless of some, whether something's criminal or not criminal.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. I guess the thing that gives me pause when people say that drugs, that is not alcohol, should be decriminalized and um, legalized is, again, this historical awareness that we have a natural experiment that we performed with one such drug, alcohol, and it has not turned out well, at least in my mind. And uh, although it could be entirely different, I don't know if uh, middle class people would go out and do smack if they could buy it at the 7-Eleven. Uh, maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't, I don't know. But uh, I do know a lot of people.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't want that either. Yeah, <laughs> by the way. yeah I,
0: right, and, and, and I, I don't think any of us want that. But one thing I am aware of, and again, this has to do with uh, some of the work that I do with these people is that they are all aware that these things are bad news. And, um, you know, we've gotten to the point in the United States where alcohol is just not really considered, even getting blind drunk is not really considered a bad thing. I don't know. I yeah,
1: you're, you're preaching a choir yeah, here, Marshall. I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had this conversation, especially with young students.
0: Yeah, so it's, it just seems to me we've gone a little bit too far in the direction I agree, of saying, I agree. you know, that, that these, are, these are good. The Constitution does not give you a, a, a right to get effed up. As far as I know. Well and it doesn't it doesn't
1: deprive you of one either, no. except insofar as you represent a public safety yeah. threat to others. That's right. But but the constitution shouldn't be our guiding principle yeah. for how no, we conduct true. ourselves in our daily lives. Just yeah, because we're free true. to do something doesn't yeah. mean we should do it.
0: Yeah, and it's a it's a very sticky problem. You know, I mean I
1: it is a very sticky
0: I problem. Was very I'm, little glad, I'm
1: glad we're having this conversation, yeah. Marshall. I'm glad that you picked out my book because yeah. it's refreshing to talk to somebody who has things to say about alcohol use today? Um, because, you know, again, on this panel that I was on over the weekend, yeah, the people drew a comparison to prohibition um, and said, you know, that didn't work. So, you know, why do we still have a drug war? And I actually am sympathetic to that. I don't sure. think that prohibition no, um, could use, well. you know, but, but, I, but I am also, you know, emotionally and I would say politically sympathetic to the points that you're making, which is addiction is nothing to shrug off. And, and actually, subst- any substance use disorder, any substance use disorder is nothing to shrug off and it's nothing to treat lightly. And these movies, like, these, this movie that I haven't seen it and probably you haven't either, but this movie called, like, The Hangover that's about people who can't remember where they were and what they've done. That's not okay. No, it's not okay. That's not okay. And that's not a normal amount. I mean, the truth is, just to put my own substance use uh, (laughs) out on the table, the truth is sometimes I do have two glasses of wine, you know? And, like, sometimes I have more than I should. But it's never the case that I don't remember where I've been. You know what I mean? And, And to valorize that in our popular yeah, culture, yeah. is to do damage. I, I, you're talking to the, you're preaching the choir on that one, Marshall.
0: Yeah. I don't know how to, you know, I don't know, this is such a complicated question. On the one hand, you want people to be free, I'm a big advocate of liberty. On the other hand, you don't want people killing themselves. And then on the third hand, as they say, you certainly don't want them going and messing other people's lives up when they're uh, uh, inebriated or stoned or whatever they are. And, uh, you know, how you... Um,
1: or just the cost of addiction to I a just don't, You know,
0: I just don't know. Yeah, I would don't know you, what you to. Yeah, know I, mean, I, well. I I don't know. I don't know exactly what to do about any of it. The thing, one thing I would say though, is that I think it is good that there is now this general perception that things like heroin are bad. You know, and even the addicts know it's bad. I mean, when the people I work with like, heroin is a bad thing. Nobody should do it.
1: The thing is, Mar- Marshall, so it's criminal. I think what you're saying is when something's criminal, it adds to the stigma, and that's good. The thing is, we're in the middle of an overdose epidemic right now. It's an epidemic. A hundred people dying a day. This is one of the most unheralded epidemics on the pages of the newspaper I've ever seen. Mm. And that epidemic is at the hands of licit narcotic, synthetic narcotic drugs mm. like OxyContin. Right. right. So these, you know, stigma or no stigma, right? These drugs are, these drugs are doing their damage. Yeah. And there's no reason to uh, perpetuate this mass injustice called the drug war. You know, when we have other drugs doing all kinds of damage, I mean, we should be having a conversation about substance use and disorder. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, that conversation should have nothing to do with throwing people in jail just <laughs> because they're on drugs.
0: Mm-hmm yeah I think they should be thrown into treatment, but that 's just me and i't again that 's a sticky thing too that you know a lot of us deal with because, because in some cases the courts will mandate people to go to treatment of various kinds and you know the civil liberties people don 't like that particularly and it, well in, and they don't
1: the, like health care reform universally either yeah. and and the affordable care act the president obama. Um, path successfully represents one of the greatest opportunities to expand treatment for substance use disorders that I've ever seen, and I don't know why it's not being talked about before. Mm. Yeah. It represents an opportunity in two respects. One is it mandates health care cost cutting, um, and that the system, in a sense, as a system, has to achieve these certain savings. Well, Untreated addiction to anything, alcohol or anything, untreated addiction costs the system 20% more than treated addiction.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So number one, I mean, imagine you, as somebody who works um, in the arena of alcohol use independence, you know how many addicts there are in this country of various types. Mm-hmm. So imagine the savings that could be achieved if we moved over to a world, if the medical profession and the healthcare industry underwent a professional renaissance, much in the same way as they did when it came to mental illness and depression in the 1990s. If we had a similar renaissance in the medical care profession and the healthcare industry when it comes to substance use disorders, that would achieve savings. The second way in which the Affordable Care Act represents an opportunity um, for treatment advocates like you or like me is that uh, the the Affordable Care Act allow states to expand Medicaid now initially that was mandatory that states would have to expand the categories of those who are eligible but the Supreme Court overturned that particular component of the Affordable Care Act and I don't think that that's gotten enough attention because Mm -hmm. that was actually an important part but in any event in those states that actually voluntarily opt to expand Medicaid um, to low-wage income earners that in and of itself represents a new opportunity to treat different substance use disorders because for the first time under the Affordable Care Act substance use disorders and addiction will be defined as a mental illness and must be covered and you cannot be turned down for a pre-existing condition under the um, Affordable Care Act so we are we are at the we are at the let's say the beginning of what I hope will be new attention, new kinds of institutional attention to treatment and the importance of treatment, the availability of treatment, and also the sophistication of treatment. Because right now, um, treatment tests incredibly well, you know, when measured against other options because untreated addiction obviously isn't effective and it is so costly. Mm -hmm. But we're still not at a moment when we know, well, what kinds of treatment programs work, work for whom and when. I mean, obviously... There are there are good studies going forward about people who are dual diagnosed, so people who have um, substance use disorders but also have a serious mental illness. That um, residential treatment programs work well for them, and close monitoring works well for them. I mean, there there are basic things, but you know we still could know more, and we still should know more, mm-hmm. and so. I don't, I don't know why we're not talking about it. I don't know why the political conversation hasn't moved in this direction of the Affordable Care Act represents an incredibly, incredible opportunity to reawaken and re-stimulate the interest in and availability of treatment in this country.
0: Hallelujah. testify Uh, no I agree with all of that so uh, we've taken up a lot of your time too much of your time we've been talking with uh, Kathleen Friedel about her book The Drug Wars in America 1940 to 1973 let me close the interview Kathleen with a uh, our traditional final question on uh, new books in history uh, and that is what are you working on now?
1: oh um, thank you for asking that right now um, I've just finished a project proposal on the future of retirement um, which will be a history of um, certain legislative changes in the late 1970s to the way in which retirement was structured in this country and different financial vehicles that were um, favored over and above, let's say, social security. And mm-hmm. so, really, the political, uh, the political impetus of the book, if you will, is why people in my generation um, and younger really, uh, at this point in our at this point in our political um, conversation, have no retirement to look forward to. I've got I mean, a that's, tent.
0: That's what I have. Exactly. Tent. A really good tent. So that's really what the book is about. <laughs> yeah. you know,
1: the future of retirement and why why it has no future and what we can do to change that.
0: Yeah. Well, Um. Uh, good luck on that project, and I hope we can have you on again. Uh, again, I'm... Um, Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and you've been listening to Kathleen Friedel talk about her book, The Drug Wars in America, 1940 to 1973. I want to thank everyone for listening, but I especially want to thank Kathleen for being on the show today. Thank you. All right, bye-bye.
1: Thanks.